Hi, I'm Greg Doran, Artistic Director Emeritus of the Royal Shakespeare Company, and I've been on a quest to see as many surviving copies as I can of Shakespeare's first folio. In this episode, I want to look through the first pages of the folio. And right at the start, you get Shakespeare's image, the Drusout engraving. This figure that thou seest here put, it was for gentle Shakespeare cut, wherein the graver had a strife with nature to outdo the life. Oh, could he but have drawn his wit, as well in brass as he has hit his face, the print would then surpass all that was ever writ in brass. But since he cannot, reader look not on his picture, but his book. That poem, which appears at the start of the first folio, is by Shakespeare's friend and rival playwright, Ben Jonson. This is Shakespeare's celebrity mugshot, used to sell the book, printed separately and pinned up at Edmund Blunt's bookshop, The Black Bear, in the North Churchyard of St Paul's Cathedral in London, in the centre of the English book trade. The Drusart engraving is probably the most iconic image of any writer in history. The Drusout engraving comes in three different versions, or states as they are known. Adrian Edwards, head of Printed Heritage Collections at the British Library, explains. So this one is um, all original. Um, so now, this that, isn't the that isn't the first state, because it, no, and the, the, the reason you can tell the difference between, as I understand it, between the different states, certainly one and two, is the shadow. That the, the head he tries to reduce his sense of it floating. Uh, yeah, so that he's added a he's added a shadow behind it. And do we think that was Drusart that did that, or? So, so my understanding is that Drusart would have been printing these in his own workshop, right? Um, leaving blanks yes. for the sheet then to go through the common press. Yeah, um, at Jaggard's workshop. Um, and that he was adjusting the image over time as he was printing them. And in the same way that the Blounts, uh, the, the Jaggards are, are, are adjusting the text. Adjusting the text, yeah. Um, in, and correcting in the compositor's errors or whatever. But on my Folio Roadshow, I've seen one or two very surprising versions of the Drusout engraving, including one in Edinburgh, Dr Graham Hogg takes up the story. Well, look, this is fantastic to see. I am really intrigued by... Um, he's got a very slow eye, as my mother would say. Um, yes, yes, somebody's just tried to do that with an ink and it hasn't quite... It's not... He, look, he looks a bit like um, Charles Lawton in Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> That's... I mean, all, all, all praise for... For, for trying to do it. So do what do we think happened to that? What would you say? That looks like to me, yeah, there's a patch there. Yes, I mean, it's the, the title page has got damaged and somebody's just pasted it onto a blank sheet and then tried to do the best they can in, with, in manuscript, and do, know, filling do, in the missing words in the title and, and, and the imprint at the bottom there. Down here? Yeah. 
That's interesting. Mm. Number 740. Do you think that's in the library of... Yeah. Uh, whoever it was. Well, we it, it was given to the, uh, the library of the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, which was founded by the Earl of Buchan. It was given to them in 1784 right. by uh, Miss Clark of Dunbar. Miss Clark of Dunbar? Yes. Good for Miss Clark. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, how she had it and where it was before then, we have no idea. Wow. That is so intriguing, isn't it, as to where these... That's it, yeah. Uh, where these books turn up. So we think this is... this The Drusart engraving is, is from the original copy. Yeah. But uh, as old, often happens with old books, the front pages and the last pages yeah. get most damaged, don't they? Yeah, and yeah, the, the last pages are missing in this copy, so it's, ah. it's, it's, uh, it's very much an imperfect copy. But that, in a way, the imperfections, uh, to me, are what make it most right. interesting. Because it, it, this is yeah. this has been used, you know, this yeah. has been read. Somebody's actually taken the care, albeit not very successfully, of, of, of patching in his poor, slow eye here. Um, to the great variety of readers, the next pages of the folio carry two letters by John Hemmings and Henry Condell. One is a dedication of their book to the incomparable pair of brethren, William Herbert and his brother Philip. The other is addressed to the great variety of readers, from the most able to him that can but spell. And it enjoins us by all means to read the book, but to buy it first. So who were Hemmings and Condell? Well, the Guildhall Library in London, which houses one of the remaining first folios, claims Hemmings and Condell as neighbours. I talked to Dr Ross about that proximity. We're sitting in what's called the John Stowe Room, which is named after the oh, historian the, John Stowe. Antiquarian, yeah. Uh, antiquarian. And we're actually looking out the window, and that's St Mary Aldermanbury. Is it? Yep, that's the churchyard. So that's so where Hemmings and Condell, Hemmings and Condell have, 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 were, were... They were buried. Buried and, and were sort of, weren't they kind of church wardens? Or yes, I think so. Like Lots of their children were baptised and buried buried there. So they lived in this area, and this, the parish of St Mary Aldermanbury is tiny, like all the city parishes. So they're probably close to where we are now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. And there's that, obviously that bust of Shakespeare to the yes. first folio that's in that little garden. Yes. So this is the first folio that's closest to closest. its origin. <laughs> Later, after my visit to Dr Ross and the Guildhall Library, I visited the little park on the site of St Mary Aldermanbury. To pay my respects to John Hemmings and Henry Condell, their monument has a bust of Shakespeare on top of it. People were taking their lunch in the sunshine and some municipal gardeners were sweeping up leaves in the little park. I asked one of them if I could borrow one of their brooms for a moment and I brushed off the cobwebs from the memorial to two extraordinary men. The Guildhall copy is regarded as one of the finest extant copies of the folio, but sometimes the more interesting to me are the copies with annotations or scribbles, ones with more evidence of readership. I described examples of these 
to a summer school in Stratford recently. Can you see a, a rusty outline of a pair of scissors? Can you make it out? One, two, three. And echoed on the other side. You ever lost a pair of scissors and wonder where you put them? <laughs> Go and look in your first folio. Um, it's, it's evidence, again, of readership. This is a, a copy in uh, the New York Public Library, one of the six copies they have there. Um, and I found some ex other extraordinary uh, <coughs> evidence. My favourite um, is a, um, a set of cat paw, muddy cat paw prints. <laughs> but they only go halfway across the page. <laughs> so somebody has clearly spotted the mucky mucky. Get the fucking... <laughs> you would, you know... That. And then you'd try and wipe it off, wouldn't you? And just... <laughs> and make it worse. Um, let's go to the next slide. Um, this is in a copy in Arundel Castle. Um, and somebody has been doodling uh, 11 pounds, no, 19 pounds, two shillings, uh, plus nine, shil nine pounds, 11 shillings and seven pence equals 20 shillings, 13. And he's right, or she's right. <laughs> but how odd that that's... They would just, in other words, we're not talking about a sacrosanct document here. We're talking about something that people uh, often doodle on. Um, let me have a look at the next slide. Our own copy here in Stratford has something that is very copy, common, but is very common in our copy. The little pointy finger <clears throat> at the side there is called a manicule. And the manicules uh, are pointing out um, particular interesting passages. So this is... Um, this is in Othello, and this is the moment when Desdemonia, Desdemona and Amelia um, are wondering why, why Othello is behaving so oddly about this handkerchief. And Amelia says, it is not a year or two shows as a man. They're all stomachs but stomachs, and we all but food. They eat us hungrily, and when they're full, they belch us. And the, whoever's reading that has gone, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if this was a, a woman writer, what do you think? Um, but there are, it's called commonplacing, which is often you will get, and sometimes they are really heavily annotated. With pe and and you, you'd think that they're kind of going, I do it in, 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 in my copies. I, I, you know, um, not in my, I don't have a first folio, but um, you know, I, in, I, if I'm reading a play, I will, I will make a note in pencil on the, on the side. Um, in order to remember it or come back to it or maybe to, to, to quote it or to give evidence of the, of the quality of the play or I guess some people would use it to write, you know, maybe use it in a sermon or something uh, like that. But um, there are many of these. Uh, in our copy, Othello is absolutely jammed with these little manicules um, and many of those copies are. Which, and I, I just love that. I love the sense that people are not only reading it, but taking it in for the first time and being surprised by the writing and, and just how Shakespeare has articulated something that, uh, that they have thought themselves. Let's take another slide. We will have tea in a minute. Here's... <laughs> it's rather sweet, isn't it? Um, 
it's a child's drawing of a... Well, maybe it's not a child. I don't know. I, shouldn't say. I think it's a child. Um, and either they're drawing themselves. It's got a Caroline collar. In fact, it might... Now that I look at this again... See, that's, that, that looks like a collar, doesn't it? That's a, a Caroline Charles I collar. But then here's a sort of... almost a gorget. You know, the sort of armour bit under a collar. Um, yes, I wonder. It's in sort of a similar um, elevation, if you like, to the Druthout engraving, I guess. Um, it's got quite, you know, a nice bob. Um, and then he's drawn something on the other side, uh, which I'll look up the next slide, thanks, Con, um, uh, which is a cannon. And then next to it, you go, I don't know what that is. <laughs> or rather, maybe I do. That's a sort of rather rude scribble by... Uh, and, and a canon next to the word Finis is sort of great. Um, there are dolls' houses scribbled on. There are many times signatures, sometimes really interesting signatures, often evidence of female readership. Um, um, uh, Elizabeth Brockett, her book, uh, Mary Child, her book, um, that is asserted in a number of the copies uh, in the Folger. Back to the preliminary pages of the first folio, and we've reached my favourite page. It lists the names of the principal actors in all these plays. Yeah. So this is what you'd be interested oh, in. No. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, um, so this this is what I did know about this copy, which yeah. is that it looks as though it was owned by somebody who knew something. Yeah. So the conjecture is that it's the the Carey family. There's the signature of Lorenzo Carey later on in the uh, book itself. Uh, okay. Julie Gardam, senior librarian at the University of Glasgow. Yeah. Less for making. Yeah. William Shakespeare. Yeah. Does that mean less well known for so um, like that? Again, that's play. been interpreted as probably maybe meaning so it either means least for making or ceased for making. Oh, yeah. um, so that's been interpreted as possibly meaning that um, so Shakespeare himself acted actually acted less because he was the he was the he was playwright. Yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of I, don't know. I think he sort of had to act. Yeah. To start with, yeah, but that and was the earlier kind of yeah. bored with acting, and yeah, you know, just did the old man's parts yeah. like Adam yeah. and yeah. say Hamlet's ghost or whatever. Yeah. By report under Richard Burbage, mm. this is my favourite page in the whole book. Yeah, you I know, understand, it's you understand that because it's the yeah. <laughs> it's the act. Because no, sure. I think these men made Shakespeare what he was. I think Richard Burbage, you know, saying that that man Shakespeare wrote. For that man, Hamlet and King mm. Lear and, mm. you know, parts. those yeah. extraordinary yeah. parts of Cello. Yeah. You know the list of parts he, he did play and that were written for him, Pericles and everything. Yeah. Uh, and I think, just doing Richard Third, I think Burbage must have said to him after he did Richard Third, 
that's a great part, William, mm. thank you very much, but never write me a part that long again. And give <laughs> me... a new... <laughs> Well, no, because it doesn't give him a break. I, <laughs> I think gone. after yeah, that, yeah, yeah, he get in Act 4, yeah, from that point on, work, you know, yeah. I think he sort of said to him, if you want me to do a fight in Act 5, give me a break in Act 4. And every play after that does. She think of Macbeth and the Indians. Yeah, I think it's a symbiosis between yeah. the actor doing it on stage yeah. and seeing what works, and the man writing for a particular talent. Yeah. And I think yeah. that fits for all the others oh. too. So Lowen, we think, took the role of Henry VIII. We think he took over the role of Falstaff, and then some of these are the young boy actors, and then Robert Arbin is the guy who ex who. Um, takes over from William Kemp and takes his roles and and the clowns the clown roles become more melancholy more wordy and can sing mm -hmm. and that's what he brings to that company um, and Joseph Taylor no and Robert Benfield no yeah. no yeah. so so he obviously uh, the idea is that he knows personally these always that's the claim mind you I suppose mm -hmm. quite a lot a lot of fans Mm -hmm. claim to know famous actors, don't they? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Isn't that wonderful, though? By eyewitness, yeah. this man saw, or this, whoever it was, saw these actors performing. Doesn't yeah. that kind of take you right yeah. back? <laughs> I've never seen yeah. a copy of the folio that gives me such a kind of, brings you so close to the sort That's of... That's kind of direct... Yeah, connection. I get. I feel yeah. as I'm in the tiring house backstage yeah. at the Globe, sort yeah. of going, "Oh, I know him." Yeah, I know <laughs> well, him. Oh, look, there's Nathan Fielder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and John Rice was a boy actor. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So these annotations are done by someone who actually knew the actors in The King's Men. The next page of the preliminaries in the first folio is the contents page, the catalogue of the several comedies, histories and tragedies contained in this volume. There are 14 comedies listed, 10 histories and 11 tragedies. But something's wrong. There are 36 plays in the book, but if you count the plays in the catalogue, there are only 35 of them. One of the plays is missing. Often in folios, I've seen some studious owner has written in the missing play. It's Troilus and Cressida. Professor Emma Smith, an acknowledged world expert on the first folio, fills in the story. We don't know why they can't get it. It's either because uh, Henry Wally, who owns the rights, uh, has probably, it's because he's got a lot of unsold copies yeah. and he thinks these will be valueless once mm. uh, you, can, you can get it as part of this. So he's probably driving quite a hard bargain. Um, uh, but they, uh, Wally's an interesting um, commercial publisher anyway. He publishes two versions of the Troilus and Cressida Quarto, the small pamphlet. One, I mean, for quite different audiences, really interesting. One says, uh, this is a brand new play, never staled by the stage. Yeah. So that's for the kind of people who don't, you know, agree, you know, think much of the theatre. And the other is, here's a play they loved when it was performed. You know, people couldn't stop clapping. So he's, he's got an eye for how you sell things. He holds out until after, presumably this has already been printed. Um, uh, uh, but 
because books at this point are not exactly sold as books, they're sold as piles of folded papers, it's relatively easy to put another one into the piles. Probably the first few copies that were sold didn't have a Troilus, but after that they did, and pretty much, I think there's only one extant copy which doesn't now, which doesn't have, well, uh, doesn't have which, a Troilus. Which I saw, in, in, in which you've seen it, mm. uh, in Japan, mm. in Meisei University, and I was working through it and got to the end of Henry VIII, and then it goes straight on to Coriolanus, mm. and in all the other copies, sort of shoved in at that point is Troilus. Yeah. They have a go at trying to put page numbers to it it's and rubbish. they just say, oh God, it's too complicated, you can't <laughs> do rubbish. that. So but but, the, but more, in some ways the more interesting thing is they have got a plan B and it's to get Timon of Athens. And so the Timon of Athens slot is where Troilus and Cressida should have gone had it all gone according to plan. They obviously think, well, we're not going to get that, but we've accounted for the pages, so let's bring something else in. Hmm. So they have a, a sort of a sort of shadowy list of maybe more plays that could have come mm -hmm. if necessary. Um, so in some ways, Timon of Athens is the great beneficiary of this because uh, if we hadn't had it here and hadn't been this trouble with Troilus and Cressida, it wouldn't have come in. But more importantly, we would never even know that we didn't have it because yeah. there's no other reference to it at all. Um. So it would be a completely unknown unknown um, and that makes me think there's a whole that opens up a whole kind of counterfactual that there are other unknown unknowns mm. that we just <laughs> we just don't know about. Is Pericles in there? No, no. Pericles doesn't and no poems either. Pericles doesn't get there until the third folio. Yeah. So they were all. I mean, they were being printed over a long period. This is a massive job, yeah. um, and probably I think Hemings and Condell, who are acting, you know, men of the theatre, are a little bit innocents abroad in the printing industry. They're not very good at keeping this project going, mm -hmm. and every other thing that comes into Jagged's print shop gets bumped up. So this takes about 20 months, probably, to print, but on, on, on and off. But then once you've got all your copies, because they're sort of effectively loose-leaf sheaves, um, you can just then print Troilus and Cressida and put it into all of them, because they don't get bound until people buy them. And it's not only the position of Troilus and Cressida that disrupts first folios. How come Henry IV Part II ends on page 100, but the next play, Henry V, starts on page 69? And Timon of Athens ends on page 98, but the very next play, Romeo and Juliet, starts on page 109? I know Hamlet's a long play, but it's made even longer in the folio, as somehow it leaps from page 156 to page 257. Then right at the end, the page numbering for Cymbeline goes page 397, page 398, page 993. They've put the three at the wrong end. My favourite typographical car crash comes at the end of King Lear. After the dying king cries, Look there, look there. The stage direction in some copies reads... H. Edis. We actually know the compositor whose error this is. He was an apprentice, and his name was John Leeson. John tries again. In some copies this reads, He. Dis. And finally, he gets it right and sorts out his spelling. The stage direction should clearly read, He dies. Poor John Leeson. It's a mess. 
Mati Teramina is the director of the Sutro Library in San Francisco. My sister Ruth and I reviewed the pagination problems in their first folio. Mati has some firm opinions about the quality of the printing. It's a very old book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We acquired this book before probably the current philosophy of conservation preservation. Yes. So you are definitely, I mean, from a conservation preservation point of view, it's super interesting to see what they used what to did, yeah. correcting and preserving look like over time. Yeah, it's interesting. We're definitely looking at some interesting fixes. So, oh, look at this. You see some Yeah, yeah like, see. Yeah, it's <laughs> so somebody's added, like, this ripped, kind of burned mm. sort of mm. copy onto that. So we're at the end of, of Henry VIII, page 231, page 232, and then, oh, now, wait a minute. That's, you have a facsimile. That's a facsimile there. page yeah, there. Yeah, you do. Um, but then you get... So it's here in the book, uh -huh, it's not uh -huh. in the contents. And they start, even that one hasn't been, they start doing the pagination. They go 79, and they go 80, and they just, and they just get no on. <laughs> <laughs> they just yeah, I have some... Wow. I have, you yeah, have I have, no, I just have thoughts on the printing of, the, of this book, or of the printer, I should yes. more specifically say. Of, of, but uh, it's not even just this book. I mean, it's just English printing in general at this time period. Um, this this is not a beautiful this... book. I mean, it looks like a phone book, to be honest, you know, with the two columns, very dense printing. Yes. From afar, if you didn't know what this was, it would look like a phone book. Yes. It's well, so they must have had really, really good eyesight. Really good eyesight. Um, you know, because... It's... This, what? Like, see how that's curved? Yes. This isn't even together. Yes. This is faded out. Uh, who, who is this printer? This is really bad printing. <laughs> like, look at it. this. Wonderful. This is awful. From a craft point yeah. of view. I have problems with this book. Yes. <laughs> So, the first folio is not the finest piece of 17th century printing there is. One of the very first copies to leave William Jaggard's print shop at the Barbican was a gift to a close friend of William's called Augustine Vincent, who worked at the College of Arms just a stone's throw from the North Churchyard of St Paul's. Vincent had a grand title. He was the Rouge Croix Herald, the Red Cross Herald. Jaggard had crossed swords with another member of the College of Arms, the York Herald, the notoriously dyspeptic Rafe Brooke. Brooke was, as Pisanio says in Cymbeline, as querulous as a weasel. In 1602, Brooke formally challenged the coat of arms that the Garter King of Arms had granted to William Shakespeare's father, John Shakespeare, on the basis of his low social rank. His challenge was defeated, as it turns out. Brooke then deceived a fellow herald, whose work he regarded as slovenly, into granting a coat of arms to a man who turned out to be the local hangman. Both he and his fellow herald were thrown into the Marshalsea prison by the king for a few months to teach them both a lesson. In 1619, Brooke produced a book of genealogy, but when a number of serious errors were revealed in it, 
he blamed his printer, William Jaggard. Jaggard might have lamented with Cassio in Othello, reputation, reputation, reputation. Oh, I have lost my reputation. I have lost the immortal part of myself, and what remains is bestial. Luckily, William Jaggard's friend in the fractious College of Arms came to his aid. Augustine Vincent wrote a book exposing the mistakes Rafe Brooke had made in his genealogy and invited Jaggard to include in a preface a letter defending himself against Weasley Brooke's accusations. The matter took up much of Jaggard's time and energy and was, in all likelihood, a much greater focus for him than the printing of the Shakespeare First Folio. In thanks for his help, Jaggard presented a copy of the finished folio to the Rouge Croix Herald, Augustine Vincent, writing on the frontispiece, Ex Dono Willie Jaggard, Typography, the gift of William Jaggard, printer, Anno Domini, 1623. In fact, William Jaggard died before the printing of the first folio was complete, which somehow makes the existence of this early copy, with its note from him, even more poignant. When this volume turned up in Lincolnshire in the late 19th century, it became one of the most sought-after copies in the world and caused a most unseemly battle. But that's for another time. The copies that left the Black Bear, Edmund Blunt's bookshop in St Paul's Churchyard, eventually travelled around the world. How do we know where they are? Well, there have been a number of attempts to catalogue the remaining copies, starting with Sidney Lee. OK, hold on. Sidney who and what census? Let's find out a bit more about that. And this is a great big facility in, in Arden Street, which used to be, for a period of time, the RSC rehearsal rooms, in fact. Absolutely. I think I rehearsed Hamlet here. <laughs> Robin Greenwood is the collections manager for the RSC. <laughs> the building itself has a, a history of um, RSC content. So it was the rehearsal rooms, and then uh, once our rehearsal rooms moved down to the other place, uh, nearer to the theatre, it became our interim costume workshop. Of course it did, of course it did. the costume did. workshop was being uh, redone, and then after they moved out, we moved in. So, so when the new costume workshop was ready... In their facility. So you've got one fabulous sort of space to, to, to have, you know, to, to house the, the collection. And what do we have in our collection? I don't think many people necessarily, you know connect the fact that we have uh, a connect. They probably think we keep the old costumes and props, but it's much more than that, isn't it? Absolutely. It's one of the most important international theatre collections in the world, and it's got three three different branches to it. So there's the museum collection, yeah. which is what you can think of as the 3D objects. So that's costumes and props, scenery, as you've mentioned. Yeah. It also includes some objects that um, were original to the Victorian theatre in 1879, yeah. when that uh, was the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre in Stratford, yeah. uh, and also fine artwork. So that's really important to our history because in 1881, uh, we had uh, 
art gallery yeah. uh, archive and library yes. um, on site. So we have over 800 paintings. Wow. They are a fine art. So what I mean by that is they're not props. They weren't yeah. used on stage. They're, they're actually by renowned artists. Yeah. And they hung in the theatre so people could come and see it wow. year round. And we have all sorts of paintings, don't we? We have paintings by Millet and Sickert and some, some pretty do. extraordinary yeah. names in, 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 in British art. Yeah. Yes. Well, look, today we've come to see a particular painting. I've asked if we can see, I know we have a portrait of a man called Sir Sidney Lee, and I think you found it. Is that right? I did find it, Greg, so I can pull that out for you, but I, I actually don't know much about Sidney Lee. Great. So well, then. Tell me a little bit about <laughs> I'll it. I'll tell you a bit. Okay. I'm also learning. <clears throat> And there he is. That's marvellous. Um, so there is a, a great big rack in front of me with some prints of what look as though they might well have been uh, paintings done for, or indeed prints done for the, the, the Boydell Gallery in, in, in London. Um, but underneath that, we have a painting of Sir Sidney Lee. It's... Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's frame has seen better days. It's, that's not in great nick, but um, the man himself is a really, he's a really key figure in the story of the first folio. So he's, I mean, that's, that's a, it says, <clears throat> it says a Walmart 1906, uh, 1906, yeah. So um, it's a, I think he's a rather handsome chap. <laughs> Don't you, what do you he's say? He's definitely got the moustache for it. He's got a great Edwardian moustache, hasn't he? And he's... Robin and I moved out of the art store and into the green room, where we were joined by collections officer Elizabeth Jeffrey. Um, well, look, I, there is something I'd like to show you both. And it's this. So this is... This is a copy of um, Sidney Lee's Census. So Sir Sidney, Sidney Lee, who became Sir Sidney Lee, in uh, 1902, he uh, conducted a census of all the copies he could find in the world of the first folio. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a fascinating document. Uh, so this contains an ex, an, a census of extant copies mm. with some account of their history and condition. By, yeah. by Sidney Lee, um, published. This looks quite old, Greg. What, how yeah. old is this? Well, this is 1902, so this is this oh, is wow. an original... I don't know how it came... I mean, I, I got it just online, as it happens, I just because I was searching about. And, it, and it's... In fact, it's some of it. I, I left the last page uncut to sort of prove that it's... So that's oh, wow. not, not been actually cut. But it's a wonderful sense of... You can hear the kind of crinkly... Yeah, crinkly you paper. see the yellowing of the paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He creates a kind of hierarchy. So the census starts with <laughs> class one perfect copies, <laughs> division A in good unrestored condition, and that, that class one division A are 14 copies. So there are copies, right. there are four private copies, in, in public, sorry, well, cop, cop, copies in public institutions in the UK, 
and private owners in the UK, uh, and there are um, 10 between them, and then the United States, public institutions and private owners in the United States. And the interesting thing is that there are only, in private ownership in the States, there are only four copies in 1902, as far as he is aware. Um, And that was soon to change, (laughs) very dramatically. So I guess you're probably keen to know where our own RSC First Failure comes in this list. Well, so um, it doesn't get into the... So it's not a perfect copy, clearly, because it doesn't get into this first 14 marvellous copies. And I have seen a couple of these copies, uh, one of them in Cologne recently. Um, And they're beautiful, they're pristine... Uh, they feel as though they've just come out of Jaggard's you know, print shop. Um, but they also don't feel as though anybody's ever read them. Mm. And that's, that's, it's the evidence of readership that I find, and annotations and you know, wines, wine rings. So somebody's mm. left their red wine on the cup. Those are the ones that I love. But um, he goes on to Class 1, Division B. Um, and I know you're holding your breath here. <laughs> <laughs> And um, and then we get to class one, division C, in good condition with leaves occasionally oh, spied from later folios. See what you've done there. <laughs> I thought we were class B. Yeah, I know. I know this is really. And we're up to we're up to what's that? XL one one one. That's forty three. We're up to now. Okay. So that's the top forty three. So then we get to class two, imperfect. Yeah. <laughs> it's, we're sliding down this list. It feels as though we're being marked, you know, yeah. by by teacher. The, the Berlin copy, yeah, was was copy a hundred. So I'm afraid I know you'll be very disappointed. We are not. <laughs> we're not and I thought ours was pretty good. You well, know. I think I think it's one of the best, but not in Sydney Lee's terms. Not in we're now in class two, imperfect division C in moderate condition with most of the preliminaries and other leaves, uh, missing leaves in facsimile or from later folios. And just read, read me between, well, read first. Uh, Robin, you read that first bit for me. Yeah. So it's 100 and what's that, 107? 107, Stratford-on-Avon, Shakespeare Memorial Library. Size. And the size, it gives you the size of the actual folio because they oh, differ wow. in sizes. So it's... Um, history, acquired by James... Halliwell Phillips, circa 1865, sold with other books from Halliwell Phillips Library in July 1889 for 95 pounds when it was acquired by Charles Edward Flower of Stratford-on-Avon for presentation to the Memorial Library there. Great, okay. So um, I'm going to get you to read the next bit uh, because you'll enjoy this bit. But so So we now know that this is the copy that Charles Edward Flower bought and presented 10 years after the theatre had opened to the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre, and it cost £95. And Charles Edward Flower was one of the local brewing family, the, the Flower family, and they, well, he raised so much money for the building of the theatre, he was known locally as self-raising flower. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. Have you not? <laughs> no. Isn't that great? Really? He was known as self I'm not in flower. the right circle. <laughs> Elizabeth, why don't you read that next bit? Tradition. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, found by Bedford, 
Flyleaf letterpress of title and preliminary leaves applied in Harris facsimiles. The portrait inlaid is a modern reproduction of the early proof impression. To this copy originally belonged the early proof impression of the portrait, which was detached <laughs> by Halliwell Phillips uh, and was sold with the Halliwell Phillips Shakespearean collection in 1897 to Marsden J. Perry Esquire, Providence, Rhode Island, the USA. So, Halliwell Phillips. Awful man. Cut. <laughs> <laughs> James Orchard, Halliwell Phillips, who, who uh, had this copy originally, cuts out our Drusart engraving and hands it, and, and in order, presumably, to perfect another copy that he could then sell. Mm. So it sounds like that this, this, um, this gentleman that he sold it to, it's not a bookseller he sells it to, it is to, uh, it's to a, a very wealthy man um, uh, called Marsden J. Seal Perry uh, in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, now, I, I'm interested in that because... It seems like a really interesting part of the journey of the first folio that it gets it gets mashed up, it gets perfected, so that there are there are the perfect copies that are extant and and are as they were when it was printed, and there are those that are then um, um, corrupted. So James Orchard Halliwell Phillips decides, and maybe that's why our, our copy only cost £95 in, mm. <laughs> in 1889, um, because, it, because it, we didn't have the, we had only a, a, a copy of the, of the, of the, of the facsimile of the, of the Drusart engraving. Um, I'm sort of determined to track down our Drusart yeah, engraving. Yeah. <laughs> I won't ask for it back because I don't think I'll get it. <laughs> what? Ninety-five pounds. Ninety-five pounds. Yeah, there you go. Um, because it feels to me just s s strange that, but in a way, it also adds to the story. It adds to the story of our folio that somehow you know we had a Drusart engraving and now we have a facsimile of that engraving. It's it seems very. The Sydney Lee Census isn't the only census of first folios ever conducted. Anthony James West conducted a census, which he published in 2003, and Eric Rasmussen incorporated that work into a census he published in 2012. I have a very battered copy of the Rasmussen catalogue, which accompanies me on my folio roadshow. You know those 19th century travel guides called Bideckers? Well, this is my Bardecker. Join me next time on my Folio Roadshow as we visit copies owned by some quite extraordinary people. See you then. <laughs>